when you're sort of in a political war, there are times you got to take sides. And I definitely chose a side that was against the powers of the state. That's what I guess the next third chapter is about here. As that date was coming up, a very strange thing happened to my little nonprofit. We got audited by the IRS. And I had gotten to a point where I just was starting to have a breakdown. I had this negative thoughts playing in my head. I had nothing else to give. I'd lost my identity. I had rolled out of bed from being a patient who was sick and sort of this mom raising her children from her couch in her bed to this advocate that was supposed to be strong and took on the LDS church and won and took on the legislative body and won. It, all these things that I had accomplished, they, they didn't feel like anything to me. I can't deal with the anguish anymore. I can't deal with the loneliness anymore. I can't deal with the anger and the hatred I have for a church that has taken over a state and there's no way to pull them away from things. And I find myself on a suicide hotline because I'm nervous to continue that night alone. At least let's see what this ketamine stuff will do. Maybe that will help with the depression. I found myself drifting in and just embracing the medication. The visual that I had, the experience that I had, were these sort of snippets of conversations with each person. The first emotions and impression I got was forgiveness and acceptance. Forgiveness and acceptance. I'd been in such a dark place. I had shut out anything spiritual because I thought spiritual and religion were one and the same. And because I had such a loathing, um, I didn't think you could tap into this sort of spiritual side of, of life and not be trapped inside dogma. I think people need to know that they have power for change within them. on thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Look for the good in everything. Look for the people who will set your soul free. It always seems impossible until it's done. Look for the good in everyone. All right, Christine, thank you for coming back for part three. So, so let's recap really quickly. You, um, you, you, you moved to Utah. <laughs> you had a bunch of shit happen to you. You were in bed for 16 years with pain. Uh, cannabis helped you learn how to manage the pain. You put together this coalition to make cannabis legal in, uh, in Utah, and it passed in 2018 by, I think it was 53%. You were able to get it passed, and I think that's where we ended last time. And um, so happy ending, fairy tale ending, right? It, it, all, no, it all worked out. 
Not, not quite. You, but you said, you said when you were going to come out to, to change Utah that you were going to change Utah. You did it, and uh, happy ending. So, uh, that's, so what, it, what, what is a part three even for? Uh, why are we even still why talking? Why are we even here? Oh my goodness! I, I wish, I wish it was that smooth of a transition, but it wasn't quite. Um, a lot of happening towards the end when we did pass that ballot initiative. Um, when you're sort of in a political war, there are times you got to take sides. And I definitely chose a side that was against the powers of the state. And that meant that some of our people chose the other side. And the, those relationships really, um, that's what I guess the next, the next uh, third chapter is about here, is, is those relationships and what happened as you transition into what do you do next? And, um, and did I understand right that the, the bill that was passed, the language got changed retroactively to kind of, because if I remember right, that there was the time where uh, the Mormon church came in and was trying to get the language of, of the bill changed and you stood firm and you were able to pass the original worded bill, but then after it passed, they came in and they changed it? That is correct. So Prop 2 on Election Day, um, here in Utah, to give you context, um, we had a lot of opposition come out against. And so the last month of the campaign, there was um, this upheaval that happened. I had spilled the beans to the public that there was this backdoor politicking happening, that the LDS Church had sat down and started to work on legislation to replace the bill that the people were about to pass. And, um, and a special session was, about, was gonna be called. So on um, November 6th, I think it was, election day that year, we passed uh, Prop 2, we got our 53%, and we were all excited, but we all in the entire state knew that the next month a special session was going to be called and our bill was going to be replaced with some alternate legislation um, that would cut our um, dispensary access to a minuscule amount. Um, a lot of other things were, were going to transpire that weren't going to be good for patients. And they honestly, it wasn't what the people voted for. So we basically went through all the hard work of following all the steps. We tried to work with legislators for years on the Hill and they wouldn't meet us. They wouldn't give us anything substantive. Then we went through our, our next option, which was to run a ballot initiative because our constitution, our state constitution grants us that right. And when we went through that process, the legislators come in and again, cut us off at the knee. So it was a very bitter, sweet victory on election night. Um, and so a month later uh, in December, two days after the bill had become legal and was the law of the land on the first business day, the session was called, the legislators called themselves into session and they did a replace and repeal. So they got rid of the entire bill, named it the same name, but put all new language in. And so a 28-page bill that we had passed with the, with the state or with the people had turned into a 300-page bill full of regulation that was making it really quite difficult for people to gain access. One of the very first things they did was implement something called Central Fill, which was turning all the health departments 
into dispensaries. They were going to be dispensing cannabis. Now, when I sat down with the then speaker of the house and explained to him why this is not legally possible, he seemed to dismiss it and said, none of this is legally possible. We're not supposed to be doing any of this. So what the state was proposing and the health department was that, <laughs> is that they dispense cannabis through the health department, um, which would effectively um, compromise their ability to get state funding because they were going to turn into legal dispensaries. They were turning into a legal drug cartel, the state of Utah. That's how the legislation was written. And all along, the whole point and then doing the replace and repeal was because they wanted to have complete control over the industry. And this is how they thought they could do it. We tried to explain to them repeatedly that this is not legal. It's preemptive because of federal law. They didn't listen to me. So I hired an attorney and I sued the state of Utah and the health department. So I went after Gary Herbert for passing this legislation and the health department for trying to do an illegal act. And they still didn't do anything to change that. They said the lawsuit was, you know, had no teeth, had no merit. Two months later, when the regular session started, so in December, they passed a special session in 2018. In, tw in January of 2019, our regular session started. During that regular session, there was no legislation proposed to fix that one key component, as well as some other things that we had a problem with. They had a cap on physicians being able to recommend cannabis. So picture this, if you will. If you go to your doctor and you want to use a therapy, a drug therapy of some kind or any kind of therapy, and he says, I'm sorry, I'm only allowed to recommend that to 150 patients and you're patient number 151. I can't recommend that therapy to you. There's no medical treatment out there known in our country that caps physicians for being able to do that, wow. except in our bill. They were capping physicians saying you can't have and you can't recommend more than 175, to your patient, 175 of your patients to use cannabis. So part of our lawsuit was a physician who joined us who says you cannot prohibit my free speech in doing and practicing medicine. So that was part of the lawsuit as well on top of the um, going after the central fill. And, and yeah. I, remember, I remember you telling me something about like, like six months that that they were, see if this rings any bells for you, because I'm probably going to be re remembering it wrong. But mm -hmm. if, if, if they already had something and they used it for six months and it was effective, but then they couldn't have it for the after oh, six months or something like that. I know what you're referencing. So before we ever ran a ballot initiative, one of those very weak needed need bills that were proposed during those years was a right to try bill if you were on hospice. And so I coined the bill, your right to try if you promise to die, because if after six months you didn't pass away from your, your disease or your condition, they were going to take cannabis away from you. Oh, uh, okay. But, but so that, that was an earlier that was a, that was idea. That was a couple that... of years earlier. Okay. And this, I mean, that's, that's the type of legislation I was being handed. Yeah. And that's why we moved towards a ballot initiative. Because as you can see, that is such a, a horrific type of policy to even propose to somebody. Yeah. Um, 
especially because just for your listeners, we see in patients who do start to use cannabis as therapy, especially at end of life, it does mitigate their symptoms. It does prolong their life. And so you give patient cannabis, it prolongs their life, and then you take it away from them for punishing them for living. It was just a very twisted and sick sort of policy that the legislators are trying to put through. Yeah. I, and I don't think at any time, and as, as we've talked, that I've really asked you to, to sell me on the benefits of medical no. cannabis. Um, but do, do you have like an elevator speech? Can you tell me like <laughs> what, what, why is it that this is such a great thing? Well, t- to be very honest, we have an endocannabinoid system. So our body has a system that is, can and does receive the cannabinoids that are in cannabis. They seem to react really well. So we have a CD1. Does that mean that we co-evolved with this plant? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. I know. It's just a crazy and novel idea to think of. But um, it does help. Uh, a lot of people believe because this became very prohibitive, it came, became um, out of our diet because we did used to consume it, eat it. We used to eat hemp. It used to be part of our just culture, our diet, and our lives. When it became prohibitive, a lot of people think it started to affect our immune system. It started to affect our endocannabinoid system, and that's why we see such a prevalence of disease states that accelerated. So you do see cannabis use come into play for different people. A lot of people think, oh, it's it, you know, it's a panacea, it can help everything. And that's not really true. But when you see that we all have an endocannabinoid system that suffers from sort of deficiencies because of our disease states and, and our illnesses, you start to go, oh, okay, I, this, this has some validity. There is some science behind it. I had to do a little bit of reading to understand what exactly the plant was doing for me because I couldn't explain why when I smoked it, it helped mitigate my symptoms. And, and I didn't always understand. And that's when I learned a little bit about, uh, you know, the receptors that were, that were working with this plant that helped sort of bind to it. And it's, it's an amazing science still because I think people just attributed it as people are just stoned. They don't really, they're not really healing, but there is something profound going on here. I don't know if that explained the science, but there is um, an endocannabinoid system. The plant has receptors that bind with it, and there seems to be some magic going on there for people. So, all right. <laughs> um, anyway, as as we push through the policy that that legislative term, it dawned on me, and I realized after I was starting to speak with some of my friends who were county commissioners that they didn't realize that the, legisl- the legislators had written into this new law that the county commissioners, the counties, were going to have to figure out the funding for this new dispensing program through their health departments. They had to revamp their entire health departments to put up security so that they can dispense an illegal substance that was federally against the law. So it, it started to create some problems um, and I told them, like, don't you know what's in the bill? Don't you guys understand what's happening? And I explained it to them. They said, can you please write that something up for us so we can share it with others? And so I started to write just a quick little email to my friend to explain things and realized it was much more complicated than a quick little email. So I contacted my attorney, told him what the, the county commissioners were asking. He says, we'll do one better. We're going to send a letter out to all of them and the legislators, everybody in the district attorney's office and the, all the counties 
are going to get this. So everybody is aware of what's happening. And he did. We did a letter campaign. And we sent out like 180 letters or, or 200 letters to every district attorney in, in the state, every county commissioner, county council person to make them aware that they were going to lose probably 75% or more of their federal funding for their health departments if they choose to break the Substance Control Act by distributing an illegal substance and effectively turning into a drug cartel. They were mortified. But people were just freaking out, not knowing what to do. Um, the people Cause, who were- Because that, that's not in the Book of Mormon, right? <laughs> it's not in the Book of Mormon. No, so, that, so they wouldn't have known- I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> Making fun of Utah legislature. Well, you know, I like as I'm listening to you talk about all these details and thinking that, you know, like there there may be listeners, I mean there are probably listeners who know who were following this, who were yeah. who were very committed to what was going on and knew what was going on. And I'm down here in Arizona with my medical cannabis prescription just you know, enjoying life, not even giving it a second thought. So this is all news, news to me as I'm listening to you talk about this. But yeah, probably people are aware of what happened. Or how much, how much do you think that people know what was really going on? I don't think, I think those who were in this state and following the movement knew everything that was going on. We mm -hmm. were pretty vocal. Um, getting news outside of the mountains in Utah is really, really hard. It's mm -hmm. hard to get people to hear what's going on here. But um, the moment we passed medical cannabis, people started paying attention. And I also did make sure that the cannabis news was on my press list so I could keep them aware of what was happening. I tried to do my very best to keep people aware. And as your listeners are listening to this, I encourage them to Google medical cannabis in Utah. It is quite the tale of... Um, of amazing feat in all honesty. This is a very, very liberal viewed issue. A medical cannabis, cannabis is just not something you equate to a conservative state. And so for Utah to be the first CBD only uh, state in the entire country, and then to be the first one to flip from CBD to whole plant access within four years, it's a pretty amazing and remarkable story. And it really isn't a tribute to the patient advocates that I brought on board and their emotionally powerful pleas for compassion. It really is. Could you give me, give me maybe one or two of those stories? Oh, absolutely. My favorite one that I like to share is because, and he was my just partner in crime and all of this is that of Doug Rice and Ashley Rice. Doug Rice is a cancer survivor himself. He's also um, a paramedic. He's retired now. He was a, a paramedic um, chief and a first responder to 9-11. He helped um, do some time there when that happened. I found Doug when the epilepsy moms who passed the CBD-only bill told me about him. He had, has an adult, nonverbal, disabled child, and he has an amazing story. He goes every year to Colorado for a firefighter convention. Um, it's sort of like a memorial for those who have lost and motorcycle ride and the whole bit. And while he was down there, he, he, his daughter, who suffers terribly from seizures, um, was having one. And he decided to try uh, a THC gummy. And he gave her a five milligram gummy at the beginning of the weekend. And she went 
seizure free for the entire weekend. And it, it, it was the most amazing thing that he said he'd ever experienced. She hadn't gone like that. So he wanted to see if there was a way for us to get access. The CBD only bill had been passed here in Utah. We didn't have brick and mortar. There was no legal way to access CBD at that point in time in our history because transporting across state lines was illegal. So these epilepsy moms introduced me to Doug and he helped join our advocacy efforts. He became the president of the Epilepsy Association here in Utah and a very vocal voice about safe access. His daughter um, benefits from THC now. She gets to go seizure free more often than not. She still suffers from seizures, but it's greatly reduced them significantly. Another one of the patients that's, that's come to help us, and we've had some patients who came along our path that, that are no longer with us. They, they came um, to us very late in the game, and I do want to sort of give them tribute. One of the very early patients that came to me was a 42-year-old man who had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And this was at the very beginning of my advocacy, and we were the same age. I saw him put up a post on Facebook and that he had just gotten this diagnosis, and he was just, as you can imagine, filled with grief because he's so young. 42 is very young to be getting diagnosed with prostate cancer. And um, as his friends, and, and he was, he's a bit of a figure here in, in Utah and within the, the political circle within the Democrat Party. So a lot of people were watching this unfold and hearts were just breaking. And I invited him to come to committee hearing up on the Hill to share his, his story about wanting to try cannabis and what he was suffering from and, and, and what he was going through. And um, his name was Forrest Shaw. And he gave a very powerful, a very powerful testimony about his his plight in dealing with cancer, and it was very moving to those legislators enough that you know they all voted unanimously to get this bill onto the floor. Um, Forrest quickly declined. He was at stage four when he first met me, and so. Over the years, his health declined, but he did use cannabis. And um, he was an amazing person to have known. And to, it was, it was exciting for him to be here, to be able to file the ballot initiative and to see it pass before he, he perished. He died, I think, two months, uh, two months after the ballot initiative passed. So he actually got to see that happen. Um, we have a, a lot of other stories of chronic pain sufferers. One of the things I was trying to do here in Utah is there was so much compassion for the children who were suffering from seizures and, and children who were dying of cancer. We have an opioid crisis in Utah. We have an overdose death rate of about 26 people a month, and that is just unbelievable. Um, I wanted to share and shed light on adult suffering because I feel like we don't talk about that enough in our culture. And so one of the, the many voices I met along the way was a wonderful woman named Laura Romney. She suffers from the same condition that I do as trigeminal neuralgia, which is a nerve condition in the face. And um, she's active LDS. She is a, a member of the Romney family. She's a, a cousin of Mitt Romney. 
And she wanted to advocate for safe access so that she could find some kind of relief for this particular condition. It's dubbed the suicide disease because narcotics and, and there seems to be no pain remedy known to help relieve this particular um, nerve condition. And she fought really hard for us to have safe access with cannabis. But the thing that's interesting about her fight and that I really truly appreciated, um, while I'm a patient that used cannabis to come off of all my pharmaceuticals, she was fighting for compassion to use both opioids and cannabis. What we were bumping up against was physicians who don't know much about cannabis saying that you had to choose one or the other. And that's just not um, feasible for a lot of patients. There are going to be some patients who can greatly reduce their pain medication by using cannabis, but they'll never be able to be off. So she was one of those advocates that raised a voice to like, let's try to find as many tools for the toolbox as possible and not um, be prejudiced towards things that we don't completely understand because it may be the secret remedy for a patient who is using um, she went on to push for Kratom, which is another plant-based medication. But we want to see different uh, modalities for patients to be able to use because not one will work for all. And so there's there's many, many stories I could keep going on. There's There's just a lot of people who, the more we had individuals come out and share their stories, and I did try to get each person into the paper as often as I could, a different story because you never know who's going to identify. There were so many people that gravitated towards Doug's story. A lot of our first responders um, felt very connected to Doug. They wanted to share their stories of PTSD and, and their, their plea and, and fight for safe access to cannabis. There's all kinds of people. Lots of LDS members identified with Laura. They, when they saw her, they just, it appealed to them the way she presents and it made them more comfortable to ask questions. And that's a little bit of what truce and my organization was about was to make, um, to take away the taboo. Let's just talk about this and let's educate each other. So we're not, um, being fearful and writing bad policy because we don't understand. So anyway, um, Sorry, I got talking there for a bit. No, I no, I I, I wanted to hear that for sure. So so I know in in January 2020, you were at a really low point. I, I, I are there things oh, yes. that that you need to talk about that got you to that low point? Sure. Let me let me fast forward to through 2019. So. Yeah. What I had told your your guests was we did a letter campaign. Yeah. What wound up happening is um, the district attorney in my county said this is absolutely illegal and our county will not be participating. In an interview um, with press, I told I applauded him and then I called on our district attorney in one of our largest counties, where our capital is, to come out against it, and he did as well. And that sort of nixed everything. They had to call a special session and they did but you you can never do much in this state without getting some you're going to get punished in politics here and um as that date was coming up a very strange thing happened to, to my little nonprofit. we got audited by the irs we were a new nonprofit. it was a very unusual thing for a nonprofit who makes as little money as we do to be audited by the IRS just 
oh, a three weeks or so before the session was about to start. Um, but I am a meticulous bookkeeper because we are a cannabis group. I knew that we would be under scrutiny ever since I opened our nonprofit doors. I have been reported to by some troll or some hater to the governor's office. And so this was, you know, a little scarier because it was the IRS, but we got our paperwork in. We passed with flying colors, but it added to the stress. I think I need to emphasize to your listeners is I'm still a patient. And as much of a, a brave warrior face that I put on to the public and doing the interviews and sitting with patients in hospitals and listening to parents um, and, and getting phone calls of people who were getting arrested and wanting help from our group. Um, I, I was getting worn out by the fight. I was really tired of trying to have all the answers and have no resources. The, the church was a mighty opponent to go up against. They have money, they have power. Um, the legislative body has nothing but money and power. The individuals that, you know, any cannabis activist fights against, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, you're dealing with law enforcement, um, all, you know, even, it, even cities and towns. People say they like medical cannabis, but nobody wants it in their town. So there was still this ongoing fight that was on the daily. And I had gotten to a point where I just was starting to have a breakdown. My body just could not handle any more of this daily stress. I've been doing this for, I started in 2012 with advocating on Facebook. And by 2019, I was exhausted. I, I just couldn't do it. I had privately gone through my divorce, um, not sharing with the public or really friends. And I had, I was starting to hit my low point. Um, towards the end of 2019, I had decided I needed to take a break from social media. I couldn't answer messages anymore. I, I had stopped responding to people texting me. I had stopped responding to people who were messaging me on Facebook. Even my supporters were sending me concerning messages. You know, your silence is deafening. And I just, I had nothing else to give. I just, I just didn't know who, who I was anymore. You know, I'd been fighting this war for so long. Um, by December of 2019, I was in a very dark place and I did, I just could not get my pain under control. I couldn't um, reconcile with the friendships that I've lost, with the deceit that happened, with the sort of radicalizing that happened to me from the church, you know, turning on us the way they did and making it a war between members and non-members when truce had worked so hard to bring so many different ideals and ideologies and beliefs together to work on something that was common and kind of a beautiful thing. It was a lot of emotions were swirling in regards to my place in the world and my place in the movement. Um, then by January, I had, I did, I hit, Alone with my pain, I had gone into my doctor's office and had asked him if there were any new therapies for this uh, trigeminal neuralgia pain that I was really struggling with. 
And he said there, there wasn't, there was the experimental stuff with shots behind the eyes and all this horrific stuff that had like a 30% chance of, of being successful. And, and I left his office and I walked to the car and I just sat there and I cried and um, I just, I just, I drove home. It was an hour drive home and I just, all I could do was turn up the music as loud as possible and just cry, just cry. And um, I went home that night and thought about, you know, what he had said. He had suggested a therapy. I suffer from um, hemiplegic migraines, which present like a stroke. And one of the therapies he had suggested was ketamine. And I had kind of brushed that off because I was really more focused on the trigeminal neuralgia. I wanted the bigger pain to be dealt with. And several days later, I had found myself dealing with a pain attack. I'd been down all day and it was now, oh gosh, like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And I couldn't get comfortable. I couldn't sleep. Um, I had this negative thoughts playing in my head, um, kind of replaying the whole cannabis effort. You know, the choices you make. Could you have done this better? Would it have been better if I had been part of the compromise so that I could be in the room so that policy could look better than it does. You know, you just sort of start second guessing everything when yeah. you're at a low. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Not a problem. I knew I was, I knew I was in a low place because I was starting to have a lot of um, suicide ideation and that had been creeping up for the past couple of weeks. That's why I had felt a need to get off of social media, um, try to do some more grounding things in my life to make me feel connected and some more meditating and, and trying to search for who I, who I am again. I, I, I'd lost my identity. I had rolled out of bed from being a patient who was sick and sort of this mom raising her children from her couch in her bed, this housewife somewhere in Kaysville in Utah, to this advocate that was supposed to be strong and took on the LDS church and won and took on the legislative body and won and then sued them. Like it, all these things that I had accomplished, they, they didn't feel like anything to me. They didn't feel like accomplishments. I still had felt like I failed, like those patients who were not going to get served because this legislation was so convoluted. I had failed them. That's all I could think about and obsessively so. And it fed my pain that I was feeling in my body. And I find myself on a suicide hotline because I'm nervous to continue that night alone because I can't deal with the anguish anymore. I can't deal with the loneliness anymore. I can't deal with the anger and the hatred I have for a church that has taken over a state and there's no way to pull them away from things. It was so consuming how small and insignificant I felt in the years of gaslighting by these men that I have worked with in politics and just this, this conversations and the slights that I would sort of passively put up with because I wanted policy to get pushed. 
it was just too much. It was just too much that night. And as I'm sitting on this phone call, they have you put all your deets in, all your details, and I get a prompt on the phone as I'm waiting saying that I'm number 17. I'm number 17. I'm number 17. I don't know if I can wait for 17 other people to be helped at 2.30 at night when I was in that much pain and anguish. And I just, the one thing that got me through is like, <laughs> I screenshotted it and I'm like, I am telling Steve about this tomorrow morning. And my friend Steve is a former legislator. I was just so mad that our suicide hotline wasn't working in an effective way that I was going to make sure that I was going to tell somebody. I hung up. And as soon as I set my phone down, it shined. And like I said, it's 2.30 in the morning. And I looked down and it is my friend who runs a Facebook page here in Utah called Utah Satire. And he's also a caregiver. His wife had stage four cancer, um, colon cancer, when he first reached out to me two and a half years earlier. He wanted to help the campaign to pass Prop 2. He wanted to know what he could do using his platform. He had like 10 million followers or you know, hits a week. So he wanted to see what he could do to help raise awareness. And we became really close friends over the years of the campaign. And his wife had passed away the year prior that June. And I had been, I, I generally kept a, a distance, a, a professional distance from some of these patients so that I could emotionally deal. But for this particular family, they just touched my heart. And I got really drawn into his wife, Shalisa's story. I think because I could identify um, with her age and watching her pass. Um, so for him to be reaching out to me that late at night wasn't terribly uncommon because we had been trying both of us to get through some fairly painful months with the passing of his wife. He had some very dark and lonely nights and it would be very often he would call to, to just talk to get through it. And this particular night, the shoe was on the other foot. He sent me a meme, not knowing what kind of crisis I was in. It was just to make me laugh. Um, those who were in opposition of us, uh, he would turn them into memes and graphics just to cheer me up. And they were oftentimes very, very, <laughs> very funny, but not appropriate for social media. <laughs> and um, I quickly sent him back my screenshot and he called. And he sat on the phone with me and listened to me kind of purge this this self-loathing and purge this this hatred that I seem to have fixated on myself and he let me get through it and then he sat there and he built me up and he told me all the wonderful things I had accomplished 
and to not give up hope. And I, while I was on the phone with him, I decided to come up with a plan. I had to do something. I can't fix this one thing. Maybe I can fix another. And I'm like, oh, at least let's see what this ketamine stuff will do. Maybe that will help with the depression. Maybe it will help with this migraine thing. Maybe I can, you know, knock one thing out. So while I'm on the phone with him, he's encouraging me. We're Google searching ketamine. We're reading about it. Um, and I tell him I'm going to call my doctor in the morning, and it's a mutual friend that we both know. Um, well, we became friends over time, but doctor, I call Dr. Talbot, and I tell them I, I'm struggling, and I need to get in. And he contacts the clinic. He sends the prescription. Um, I think I had told you I luckily had contacted the clinic and saw that they had a cancellation and were able to get me in. He called in the script, and within a few hours, I was sitting in a chair, and I was getting my first ketamine treatment. And um, I really didn't have any expectation because I, I had had drug therapy before for many, many years of different kinds and very little hope was ever given. And if it was, it was so unbelievably temporary. It was hardly worth mentioning. Um, but walking into this situation, um, I was, I was, I was praying. I was really praying that this was going to be something that could at least get me back on track to finding myself again. And um, as the nurse puts the IV in and starts talking me through a little bit of what to expect and, and just sort of different things of encouragement about, you know, letting go, let just let yourself float, you know. Um, I found myself drifting in and just embracing the medication as it hit my vein. And I I did, I did drift. I, and while I was under, if you don't mind me sharing, it no, was, a, it was a, um, it was an unexpected experience for a few weeks. I had been sort of meditating and sorting through these relationships I had formed during the advocacy years. And, um, while I was under, I was the visual that I had, the experience that I had were these sort of snippets of conversations with each person. And during this sort of little snippet that my brain was sharing with me, uh, I ha would have a range of emotions about this person, about that experience and who they were. It was everything from frustration to, to joy. And it was every person that I had been dealing with. And I was able to sort of emotionally process. And when I came out of that um, hour i was in 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 a drip for an hour when i came out of it i remember my daughter was there with me and i opened my eyes and i saw her and i remember the first emotions and impression i got was forgiveness and acceptance and that was such a profound message that came through with me on on that side of it which was weird because that's not really what i was searching for i just wanted i just wanted relief you know i just wanted the record player to stop now, isn't, isn't that the same message that you felt you came out of your near-death experience with? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I've, I've got to ask a couple of questions. Oh, um, sure. I mean, there, there, there's a view. Yeah. Let me see where I want to go with this. Um, all right. <laughs> so the, these relationships that you had formed and, and you were doing the emotional processing while you were under the influence of, of ketamine and... Mm -hmm. Did that include guys like um, 
Marty Stevens and people on the, the side of the church that you had really felt victimized by and just hurt? Did, did you feel it, that same sense of it, forgiveness it and love for them too? It didn't happen in that session. Not in that oh, first session, no. Okay. My, my, on my fifth session, I had, um, I had what I would consider, what some may consider a bad trip. Mm. I don't think there's bad trips. I think there's processing. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. And so um, there's a term that's used in, within, you know, drugs and psychedelics, set and setting. Yeah. And um, my set and setting going into all my treatments was pretty good. I was being, I was sheltering myself from people. I had closed off my social media. I was not allowing a lot of people to access me. Um, and this is pre-COVID, just to give people an idea. This is right. This is in uh, February before we really start to see any big announcements happening. We're getting whispers, so I'm I'm already sort of so <laughs> social distancing. Yeah. But it was more like emotional distancing from people, so that I could, you know, I was in protective mode. I was trying to preserve what little bit of me I had left. Yeah. But um, on the fifth session. I let somebody break that barrier. I had opened up a bill file with a legislator because I wanted to fix some of the things that were still problematic with our legislation. It was a long shot, but the year previous, um, the moment you were able to open a bill file, this legislator did. And then we sat down with her and we crafted language and everything else. Well, she contacts me, it's the session that this is all happening this year, and tells me they're about to take the bill. They've got to fix this stuff. They're going to throw out all the language in it. They've got to fix these things because they didn't plan. They did not plan. March 1st is when the, the program goes online and they need to get these other things fixed. And I'm the only one that has a bill file open. And I was furious. I was upset. I pushed back. She snapped. I said, you know what? Do, do whatever. I'm on the hill. I don't care. I just don't care. Do whatever you guys are going to do because that's what you're going to do. <laughs> and I got off the phone and it put me, I was on the hill. I couldn't, I wanted to not be on the hill. I wish it didn't answer the phone call. I walked into the clinic and I just, I took a deep breath before I opened the door and I'm just like, let it go. Let it be there. Let it be back there. And um, I couldn't. While I was under during that trip, I was agitated. I kept popping out of the medication. I kept trying to put myself back under. Um, just the swirling emotions about the church kept seeping in. And no, I have not gotten to a place of complete peace with that. I have gotten better. It wasn't from the ketamine experiences. I have done a few other trips uh, using psilocybin on a few occasions that are getting me to a more... Um, peaceful place with it. It's hard to live in a state and still constantly see the, the re-triggering. It just, it, it happens every day because you see the overreach into politics and you see the gaslighting in their policy making and in the way they speak to the public and they're heavily influenced in everything here. It just permeates everything. And so that one, that part of it is a bit harder to come to terms with. And I've had many people tell me it may just be that I need to move out of the state. So there isn't that constant reminder. But on the same flip side of that, I don't want to run away. I don't want them to think that they can continue this type of bullying within the community. But 
it, it's, it's going to be a ways to go before I get comfortable with where the church has influenced so many things in people's lives. They, they've caused harm and they won't take accountability for that harm. And that's why I don't run away. I want to be the reminder. I want them to know that they, they did wrong by the people of Utah by, by interfering. Yeah. Yeah. I, th there was another question I wanted to ask you, but I didn't want to interrupt the flow that you were in. Um, I, I, my, my best friend uh, growing up, he was in a wheelchair. He's got this whole story about, you know, he was five years old. He was in a private plane accident and he, he lost the use of his legs at that point. Um, this was in the like mid to late seventies. He got a, a priesthood blessing from president Kimball before he was the prophet of the church, but he was, you know, still, and he told him that he'd walk again. And of course he never did. And when he was in his early thirties, he took his life. And I was living in Indiana at the time and, you know, we had kind of grown apart, you know, like you do with high school friends, you know, anytime sure. I'd come back to Arizona, we'd get together. And, and, um, but I remember thinking, you know, his, his family asked me to come out and speak at his, at his funeral. And I did. And it was just a real triggering thing for me to see how, you know, there were definitely like the Mormon side of his family and friends and then the non-Mormon side of his family and friends and the way that especially his mom treated the non-Mormon stuff. And it just like, it, it, it was a difficult, it was a difficult thing to experience. But I always wondered, why didn't he call me? You know, like when, when, when he's in that deep, dark place where he's contemplating suicide, why, why wouldn't he call me? He never said anything to me. And and so I was thinking of that as I was listening to you talk about being on the phone, seeing that you were 17 on the wait list, but knowing that you, you knew that you had other people that you could have reached out to, but there was something. So, so <laughs> I want to be sensitive in the way that I asked the question. I'm not saying that you did anything wrong. Just, I want to understand as much as I, I can. I that, yeah, that, yeah, that mentality of like, what, what, what does that feel like when, when you're in that place? First, I think for me, I, I didn't think I could reach out to people. I, I feel like I had positioned myself in a way within my friendships that I was the person that they were to come to, mm. not the other way around. And that's not really how friendships work. And I had just played the role of advocate for so long that I've, mentally had had i think put some false narratives in place that mm. i was the strong one and that i was not supposed to show any kind of weakness ever that had a lot to do with you know playing into some of my childhood narratives too you know i was the oldest um i always felt like i had to prove my worth and, and mm. my i had to be the you know the perfectionist i had to be the best i can actually be so that i could you know, be accepted and loved. And I think that's what was kind of in play here. You know, I didn't feel like I, I had that with people. Um, my friend that, that reached out that night quickly showed me how many people do care. Yeah. And, and I needed that reminder. I think we forget as human beings that, that we are loved, that we all get caught up in our daily lives, but 
I would take a phone call from any one of my friends if they were in crisis. Right. And I think um, this, this was a prime example of me needing to share with other people in my community this experience, this, this load and talk about the depression and talk about it in a way I hadn't really discussed as part of my narrative when I talked about medical cannabis. Um, 16 years is easy to say brushed off in a quick little sentence, but these are halt, that's 16 birthdays for four different children that, that were struggles that I probably wasn't really up and functioning at. That's 16 Christmases and 16 Thanksgiving. Like that's a chunk of time to just have um, wiped away due to illness. And that kind of thing, those kinds of things plagued me. You know, I, I felt all these shortcomings of mine creep up and, and nobody wants to share that with people. Nobody wants to say, you know, I'm all these, these horrible things. And it's, it's weird what us human beings do to ourselves. We just want to destroy ourselves. And it, it's not, a lot of times it's not based in reality. It's just our perception. Yeah. Um, which, which is still reality. Yes, <laughs> it's a reality of our own creation in that moment, and I can imagine, yes. I can imagine being because what you described is that you were, you were reliving and being really critical of what you saw as failures yeah. in in your advocacy and feeling like you would let a lot of people down, and so probably not wanting to feel like you're burdening them further by taking your grief to them and dumping that on right. somebody else. I I could. I can imagine myself feeling like that. Well, and then, and then I'm a patient and, and the hard, the one of the biggest reasons for my divorce um, is besides the fact that we had moved and our, our relationship had transitioned from a husband and wife to more caregiver patient, you know, um, was that I was trying to free my ex from that, this having to take care of me, you know, like I didn't, you know, my, my health was starting to decline again. And I didn't know if I had advocated my, my health right back into a hole. That was a lot of the depression that was coming on right then too, was I thought I had given my best, my, my second lease on life. I thought I gave away to this effort and it, it left me nothing. I mean, I was written out of conversations. There are people who were part of the compromise who have business um, ventures in the space here, I, you know, I just kind of effectively was, you know, thanks for your help. Goodbye. It, it was a very weird sort of existence trying to figure out who I was again, you know, who am yeah. I? Yeah. So I can relate to your friend not reaching out because it, it is a, a, you don't want to be a burden again. And as a patient, it, it plagues you so much to be a yeah. burden to family and community. Yeah, and it was even more of a question for you know his brother, who was much closer to him at the time than than certainly I was, and and several of his closer friends, and just wondering like why, what's what's going on, and and uh, well, I'm I'm glad that your friend was there for you to send you the the meme, and and Me too. Uh, and and that they were able to to have that opening in the clinic that you could get in for that first ketamine treatment within what was it like twelve hours or something yeah, from the time. I was, yeah, it was less than that. Yeah, within 10 hours from me being on the suicide hotline, I was in a ketamine yeah. clinic. It was yeah. really, it was really, I felt like the universe just sort of reaching out saying, hold on a minute, we got other plans for you. You got to yeah. 
you got to get right. And it did lead me down a path into other psychedelics. And because um, I, I, once I got through the ketamine treatment, I took a, a break from, you know, everything. And then COVID hit. Yeah. And during the, the COVID months, um, I started having a conversation with my friend, uh, Steve Urquhart, who was a former senator and uh, legislator. He started the psilocybin church here in Utah called the Divine Assembly. And, um, and you're an ordained minister of that now, I, aren't you? I am now. <laughs> yes, that happened. I had some friends who were wanting to get married uh, a little while ago in I became an ordained minister in Steve's church, so I could do that for them. That, wasn't that on, on Halloween? It was on Halloween. It was the last day of the month of, it was LGBTQ uh, History Month. Yeah. So it was very, it, it had it, its meaning. Yes, it was on Halloween. It was cute that it was on Halloween. Um, their little, their flower children were all dressed in Halloween costumes, and it was cute to see them all coming down the aisle. But they were... Um, a gay couple that had been together for 12 years. And after, you know, we watched sort of what's happened with the Supreme court, you know, there's been some concern mm -hmm. when they asked me to do it. I was extremely honored. Um, I am a mom of a queer child and she's bisexual. So I have seen how people treat her when she's in a heterosexual presenting relationship and when she's in, um, in a lesbian presenting relationship and the biases that happen there. So for my friend to ask me to do this for him and his husband was, was a true honor. Um, I really, it was a special experience. And, and how many years has it, had it been since, because it wasn't Halloween when yes. you found out that your, uh, son, was your son was mm -hmm. being abused? Yeah. What, so 22 or 23 years, years? 27 years ago. 27 years previously. Yeah. Wow. So Halloween has always had its, its uh, you know, it's an emotional anniversary because yeah. of that, that tragedy in it. And so to have this year, have this beautiful moment was yeah. for me, because I've gone through this sort of um, spiritual awakening and, and finding my identity and finding yeah. um, that higher power that I, I, I don't know if it's an identity of God, but there's a higher power within this universe that I felt tapped back into. I experienced it for a short time <clears throat> on the operating table. Yeah. Um, and to have that experience again and, and being, feeling those familiar thoughts and feelings again, I, it, it's been an experience. It's been an amazing experience. Do, do you think, so, so, you know, this idea of like connecting to a higher power, it, it, it would make sense to me that if there is a higher power, which I think there is, there isn't really anything of connecting to it or disconnecting to it because it's just something it's that we're always there. connected to. It's just whether we're paying attention to it or we're distracting ourselves with other things. I mean, would, would you agree with that? Absolutely, I do. Um, you get distracted with the noise that is, that is what's in front of us, you know, what is, was keeping us um, preoccupied that you aren't tuned in. Cause I, and I really do believe that um, when I was sort of trying to hush the, this sort of um, awareness that was going on after brain surgery, cause it made me terribly uncomfortable and I didn't know who I could talk to about it. Um, 
I, I sort of did have an understanding of when I was ready, it will, it will, it would be there. Mm. You know, it's not like something I could actually turn off. Yeah. I can tune out. And I think that's what many of us do. We tune out to things of knowing, because I think we're all capable of knowing. I think we're all capable of it. And I don't of, of knowing what the being tapped into a higher power being tapped into ourself. I, I do believe that people can reach that through meditation, through psychedelic experience. I think you can tap into this universal energy and be a part of it. You can definitely <clears throat> teach yourself how to, to tune into others who are tapped into that. Uh, it's just being mindful and looking and being observant, um, listening more with your heart without sounding so corny sure. or with something than your ears. Well, um, we're, we're, we don't really have anything except words <laughs> to, to use to try and express this stuff. So yeah, corny or not, I get it. It's, there is an, an energy that goes on when you, when you hear people, when you talk to people, they, sh they share with you who they are and their mm. experiences. And if you are quiet enough to, to listen, you, you can feel that energy. You can feel that pull within the world. And, and, and I think interested enough in other people mm -hmm. and not feeling like your own uh, sense of self is being threatened, with, like whatever that is. Because it, like once we start getting threatened, that whole fight or flight thing kicks in and we can put up boundaries and shut down, like, like narrow our focus to survival really, really quickly. Agreed. Absolutely agree. It's, it's interesting how we're even programmed to do that. Yeah. You know, I think it takes a lot of energy to teach a child to think beyond themselves. You know, yeah. we're, we're just, we're, we're selfish from birth. And then I don't think that ever changes. You have to really actively search to find meaning beyond yourself. And get past the superficial stuff. I was definitely caught up into pushing the policy and having that kind of influence. <clears throat> it, it was a bit intoxicating to see that, that words and ideas had power and meaning within the community. It was really quite a phenomenal thing to think of this. I was just this, this lady that lived in a little town, 30 minutes from the capital who decided, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could all smoke weed? <laughs> what? Um, I mean, I'm being tongue-in-cheek a little bit. But, but not really. I, but not really. <laughs> you, know, you know, I, I you know, hobbled my way up, and I do say hobbled because I was still using my cane, to Capitol Hill and said, hey, wouldn't this be a great law? And then four and a half years later, I convinced the state to vote yes on something. And I, again, not just me, it was those beautiful voices and stories that I was telling you just a few of, but there were, are many other individuals who weren't patients either, who were allies telling and sharing stories of their friends and family with so many people. That's what the thing that was a, a cool energy to be tapped into, is I genuinely felt like I was, I was part of something much, much bigger. Yeah. And, and that's why, I, for me, when people give me credit for everything that happened in Utah. And like, uh, I just sort of tapped the energy and I let it flow. You know, I just, I was the one that brought the spigot and, and I just feel like it was already here. And I just 
I just knew how to, to manipulate it so that it flowed for all of us to benefit. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of what I feel I'm still here to do. I think there's still more that has to happen in Utah. And that's a bit of why I haven't fleed yet is I, I think she's got a lot to learn and there's a lot of problems here. There's, it's not just the drug policy stuff. There's a, there's a lot of sex stuff that goes on in this state that's really needs to be vetted out and, and released. There's a lot of sadness that goes on in this state that I, I want to make sure that I'm part of that change and I can help heal where I can. Well, I, I am going to introduce you to Christy Johnson. I know we've talked about that before off offline, but she and I yeah. have had some conversations. So please do. Please yeah. do. Yeah. There's a lot there's a lot to still heal from here in in um and it's not just this particular faith. I have a a bit of a it's not a bit. I have I have a disdain for organized religion. It has been used as a tool to manipulate other men for for centuries and in it i really worry that people who don't understand this universal energy they they try to manipulate it to to benefit ego and you see that so often in these these churches and these mega churches and lds church is a mega church i mean they got a hundred billion dollars they're just sitting on that nest egg Mm -hmm. it's a little alarming you know that that an organization like this can be so powerful to influence policy of a, of a state, Glenn, of an entire state. What other state in this union has that kind of entity controlling it? We have about 55% of our state population is LDS. There's a, a debate on whether how much of that population is active and active for your members they know is at least uh, three to four times a month. That's considered an active LDS member. So of that 55%, about half, maybe 40% of that is active LDS. 90% of our legislative body is LDS. 90%. The church has a heavy dominance over, over life in this state. And that bothers me for those who, of us who aren't active LDS, that we're constantly having you know, their influence pushed on our daily lives. It affects people's psyche in, in a way that's it's not often discussed. And yeah. I, I'm hoping I can raise a little awareness in that area too. Well, t- tell, me, tell me a little bit more about your experiences with, with ketamine. And then you mentioned the psilocybin mushrooms as part of the Divine Assembly oh, Church. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear those experiences um, and kind of insights that came to you and anything like that. And, and I also, I'm, I'm curious about the legal cover of having a, a church for psilocybin. Is that really effective? Is that, is that going to work? Has, has there been any run-ins with the law at, at this point or, or what's going on with that? So there, there's a lot of things I'm curious. There are. To hear and, you talk and- about. We should, you should, if, you, if you'd like me to, I'll introduce you to Steve Urquhart. Yeah. Have him come on and, and discuss that because that is a wonderful con. He is an attorney, uh-huh. so he can go into the legalities of everything. But um, when I came out of the ketamine and the, the COVID situation started to happen and unfold, um, at the time, my oldest child, the one that had suffered the abuse, um, is living at home with me. 
uh, he and I were, so we're COVID mates. We're in this thing together. And one day he comes to me and he says, Hey, uh, mom, a friend of mine gave me some mushrooms and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do them. I was like, okay. All right. Um, at this point in time, in my um, experience, I had tried mushrooms at one point. I didn't have, a, you know, a, an experience that really was anything. You know, I didn't so hallucinate. I didn't see things. Anyway, so I, I said, you know, great, go ahead, do your thing. He does it. He comes back. He, from a walk, he goes on a hike and he says he had the, this most profound spiritual experience. And my daughter was over at the time and she made some comment about people do not go on walks and have spiritual experiences. What are you on? Um, <laughs> so uh, he shares with us what he's on and he just, he's just full of so much just he wants to talk and love and be expressive, which is a really unusual thing. This child is the one that suffered the abuse. Right. He is on the uh, spectrum, the mm -hmm. autistic spectrum. And so sharing of emotions and feeling connected to people was a very much a struggle for him his entire life. It's always has been. He is far more, he's definitely closer to me than he is any other human being. Um, but he always was very stiff. Um, he just, he's not a hugger, uh, touching was always something that was kind of off putting to him as far as, you know, uh, it's just not very trusting. And, um, I was watching him just be smile and warm and give the, the softest, sweetest little hugs and just be enjoyable that evening. And I, I kind of took in the experience and I thought that, well, that, that was a really good thing to have had a few weeks later, he approaches and he says, Hey mom. I've got more and I've got enough of a dose for me and you. Do you want to do it with me? And I said, Oh honey, don't waste your medicine on me. Like I, you know, I don't, it doesn't work for me. And how big of a no. dose was it? Um, how, for me, yeah. it was, uh, I did a gram and a half. Okay. So it was, and honestly, that's a very mild dose. I've had up to four or five grams and still not had an experience. Really? So, it, but you've it, you've got like the high tolerance. You, you think stuff. because of yeah. I I don't know if it's from the brain injury or what. Um, I've learned a little more about psilocybin, and there there are different cultivars. So there are, you know, spore specifics might have a lot to do with different people react differently to them, and this is a situation where that happens. So this particular cultivar that he had. I did have a reaction to it wasn't um, heavy on the, the visuals or anything, but there was definitely an emotional reaction. Um, we spent the next six hours with each other. We, you know, we had a fire. I have a fire pit in my backyard. We, I cooked food, we visited and he just started to open up and share. And we both shared and we talked about the trauma. Um, we, I just didn't discuss the abuse that he suffered growing up. It wasn't, something I was ever comfortable emotionally to talk about. There's a lot of shame and guilt that I carried with it. And, and as he's been an adult, he's wanted to know a little more, rightly so. And so we were able to start to dive into those, those deeper emotional conversations to discuss the abuse, how he feels about it, you know, you know, just a lot of that experience, you know, a lot of that trauma. Um, wind up being a very wonderful experience. I, I hadn't 
felt so emotionally connected to this little guy in such a long time. You know, it's just been like so much garbage and trauma over the years had built up that I just didn't feel that connection with him. And during this, I definitely felt like we both were tapped in to the divine. There's no other way to, 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 to explain the amount of love that was kind of generating between him and I in that um, moment. Uh, and it was, it was truly a beautiful bonding experience for me. And, and I would assume for him, because we have, we have still feel very connected from that yeah. experience on. Um, he even, you know, as a parent, you know, you, you kind of wear your time out. I had to have my son move out of the house. And even after him moving out of the house, we quickly came back to each other because that, that bonding experience kind of cemented our relationship a little more. I shared this with my friend and told him about, you know, this thing that was happening with me, that just feeling tapped into a different sort of energy source for myself. And, and that's, did you feel the same way about the ketamine or uh, no, could, like no, what, what, what are the differences no. in the experience of, of ketamine and the mushrooms besides well, being in a clinic and having a drip in your arm? And <laughs> one definitely and, felt artificial. Yeah. There was a, 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 a gentleness a little bit with the mushrooms. Um, but oddly it felt, uh, I've had other experience. I have tried LSD too. And that's a little even different than the mushrooms, though those two are a little more similar. The modality just what presented differently emotionally. Um, with ketamine, it was dissociative, if that makes sense. I felt very distant from my body. And with mushrooms, I felt connected to my body. I felt that's very much interesting. Yeah. Like I I was here in my body. I wasn't you know, like in a tunnel or, or separated from it. So they did, they both serve different purposes. I feel like with psilocybin, there was a more reparative going on. Yeah. Whereas with ketamine, it was more acute. It's like mm. going and getting a shock because you're in a tremendous amount of pain. And it's just to get you through that pain. The ketamine was, that's what it felt like is it was, this is an emergency. I need to stop this repetitive brain um, cycling and the ketamine did that. It went in and just sort of, um, just like silence the chatter. Yes, yes, okay. yes. And that was so helpful because, and then what the psilocybin seems to be doing is it's, it's helping repair. It's helping heal in a, in a different kind of way. And it's doesn't feel contrived. It doesn't feel forced like with, the ketamine, it was, it definitely felt like chemicals. Mm. This feels a little gentler mm. and I don't quite understand all of it yet. So I apologize to your listeners. I don't have all the answers. I'm still experiencing it. Mm. Um, I'm still trying to understand one, how on earth these mushrooms are doing this. Like I still haven't dived into the science of this and figured out um, I have come across studies. I know that John Hopkins is doing a study right now with psilocybin and depression and MDD, which is major depressive disorder. And you're seeing some beautiful results of people doing a psilocybin treatment two weeks apart and having great success. Um, the reading it, 
it becomes a replacement for serotonin, doesn't it? it, it that's how it acts so. in the brain. And then like so. different regions of the brain are communicating with each other in ways that they don't typically. I think do. I got that from Michael Pollan's oh. section three of uh, <laughs> how to change your mind. Yep. I'm still needing to finish that book. I've had a lot of people who, um, as I've been sharing my experience of like, you've got to read this book. And so I'm still, I'm still venturing into this arena, much like I did with the cannabis space. It's all still very new. I'm still exploring this and I'm overcoming a lot. People have to remember, you know, I'm a daughter of a narcotics officer. It's yeah. this is all very taboo, even still for me now to even, to, to even be on a podcast talking about using substances that are, you know, they're still illegal guys. These are still schedule one substances that were, you know, not very, in Oregon. Okay. Not in Oregon. anymore. <laughs> and Washington DC, right? Was it Washington DC it also was DC. legalized it? DC yeah. did too. Yep. Um, we are seeing a great change happen and I would like to see more um, criminal justice reform and drug policy reform happening across the country. I think, this is a, a new age. It's a new age in, in medicine. I think we shouldn't have blocked out this, this type of therapy for, for people. But we'll see where things go. All right. I think my biggest outgoing message for anyone listening to this is don't be afraid to try. I mean, don't give up on um, finding something that may actually change your life. I never thought in a million years cannabis would have done what it did for me. And it led me down a path. I never, I, I was in rooms I never thought I'd be in. I mean, meeting Senator Orrin Hatch and talking to him about cannabis policy and helping change his mind and his outgoing message before he leaves. You know, the Senate is this crazy speech about cannabis. When you think about, you know, meeting Cory Booker and meeting Gillenbrand and meeting these legislators who are these big names working on these big policies i think people need to know that they have power for change within them they they have the ability to to be great influences within their community and they should definitely not give up hope they should try every avenue possible to find a reprieve from everything that that frustrates them if if they find if they find that psychedelics open up an awareness in them, I don't think they should be bashful about sharing that with others because it may lead somebody else down a path of awareness and awakening. Yeah. So, so you, you, you mentioned a while back, you've got this new emerging spiritual worldview. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit. Is there anything more that you want to say about that? I'm curious to learn more about it. Uh, there's so much, I, I feel so young and naive to what I'm learning right now. I, I, I'd been in such a dark place. I had shut out anything spiritual because I thought spiritual and religion were one and the same. Mm -hmm. And because I had such a loathing, um, I didn't think you could tap into this sort of spiritual side of, of life and not be trapped inside dogmas. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring more with this. Um, I want to do more. Uh, I do take the sacrament, the, the psilocybin, and I do a lot of 
painting. I'm into watercolor painting now. It's something that I always wanted to do. And I've just tapped into a creative energy space there that I am truly enjoying. It's, it's those parts of my humanity that I think are the spiritual side of the universe that I hadn't really enjoyed. And that's what I'm trying to find. That's what I'm trying to search for. So, so the, the sacrament of psilocybin, is that something that you do as a, <laughs> as a group? Is it something that you do in private? Is it both? Uh, like For me, I work? do it. I, for me, I do it privately. I'm not one that's, um, I, I don't, I, like, I don't buy into that, you know, congregating kind of thing. For Steve, he really wants to help create a community with the church, a place where not only could people can dive into their spirituality, but also practice harm reduction tools. Because when you do bring in psychedelics and you do start talking about spirituality, I think you have to be very careful. You're, you're opening up some sensitive doors for people and it's a place that can be easily manipulated. Yeah. And so the, there is a sacred space of, of trust that I think with Steve, he wants to create um, an avenue where people can practice this, but also a community that can create safety for each other because um, they don't, they don't want to get into a situation where somebody can, can abuse you know, others. This is a very delicate thing, just like religion is. I think it's a very manipulative tool as well, telling people that you can give them promises of an afterlife if they give you everything in this life. Yeah. Um, so I, for me, I like to practice using psilocybin alone because yeah. I do it meditatively. I generally... In, you know, there's music involved, but there's also being able to zone into an activity of whether it be spending time with a loved one, like my son, or, uh, you know, a friend, you know, there is a time in a season to be able to share that space with, with your friends, being yeah. able to, to go on a journey together and, and connect. I think more of that needs to happen. We don't connect on a real level. Um, because of the way our culture looks with social media and everything else. So this is an avenue for us to do that. Yeah. Um, the Divine Assembly is having a, uh, an online event together where we're encouraging those who have sacrament to use their sacrament before they get online. But um, mid-December, we're all supposed to be coming together. Steve has music lined up, possibly some speakers to talk and, and, I don't know. We're, we're experimenting here. We're experimenting into the divine. Well, if you haven't picked an opening hymn yet, let me recommend that the spirit of God, like a fire is burning because that's what they sang <laughs> in the Kirtland temple when they did the dedication there. And I am quite convinced that uh, their sacrament involved included some psilocybin spiked wine or something like that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm Seeing sure. the flaming tongues. Yeah. That's, that's, I, 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 I don't know how, many people would share this uh, opinion that I have about Joseph Smith and the early Mormon church. But I, I, I'm pretty convinced that Joseph Smith used psychedelics and theogens yep. and that the, especially yep. the, the message that came out early, I, I think he was kind of pressured into starting a church by his mom and other people around him. And then he kind of got drunk on the power a little bit, you know, like how you talked yep. about, you, you recognize the power of the word when you're out there and being able to move people, move people's beliefs emotionally. And, mm -hmm. you know, that can really grab hold of you. But I, 
I think that early message of everybody has direct inspiration, direct revelation with the divine, you know, whether you're defining that as in a Protestant symbolism with the Trinity or something different the way that people today do. And then you've, and then you've got people that come in and build, like you said, dogma and structures and bureaucracy and fear-based, control-based priesthood. We, we are the ones that control whether the gates to heaven are open or closed to you. So bow before us, you know, yes. this kind of thing that, 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 which is, which is actually the story of the, uh, the, the great apostasy that Joseph mm-hmm. Smith said that he was restoring everybody from and this kind of this cycle. Of, right. You know, well, and so, that's where my pause is with the, with the organized religion a little bit too, is I, I don't like that and I don't want to, you know, participate in that. So I want to be very careful that I'm, I'm yeah. not portraying myself as somebody that knows something and you should follow me. My, my counsel to people is that the divine in the universe is all around us. And if mm-hmm. you quiet yourself, you can tap into it. You know, you can look to others to guide you, but it really is a solitary experience. It is something between you and the divine. And um, I think the psilocybin provides an avenue for you, you know, a vehicle to help you tap into that. Um, I also don't necessarily need psilocybin every time to tap into that. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that I can, you know, still have a lot of respect for and use it judiciously when when needed. And I seem to try to, I try to stay in tune to that. I try to stay in tune to listening when it, it feels like it's time for me. Cause I have gone, I've gone months without needing to dose. And as like, even just recently I have dosed over the past weekend, we're going into winter. This, this election cycle was extremely stressful. This has been a really um, tough few years politically and the, the tensions and everything, it felt like there was a chapter that was closing and I sort of wanted to uh, commemorate the of what had happened. I wanted to ponder and have some alone time with myself and those thoughts and those feelings about what 2020 has turned into and what the close of it looks like for myself because it's been such a, an, an emotional year um, starting with January and here we are in November. And so, you know, I guess that's, that's where I'm at with my story. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and now you're going to take your experience with cannabis in Utah and you've got your sight sets on uh, psychedelics with the Capitol. Mm-hmm. I mean, any, I, any, any plans there to, to do some like national movements? I, I do want to, I'm absolutely, I would not I'll be very honest. I have tapped into some of my political friends to let them know, hey, I, I want the Biden camp to know about my story. Mm-hmm. I would like to share um, where cannabis has led me, but where we need to go with drug policy reform across the country. We are still dealing with the drug crisis in a punitive way and we need to handle it as a healthcare crisis and i would like to be part of that narrative i'd like to be part of that conversation there's a lot of us out here that would like to be a part of it i have a unique situation where i have flipped a conservative state 
And I would like to share that with other states. You know, I, I have gone into Wyoming. I've had advocates in Wyoming reach out to me and I'm working with legislators there trying to educate and be a support system for them so they don't have to repeat the same mistakes that Utah did. So they yeah. can have the benefit of somebody who's been through it a little and can guide them to answers. You know, I think we're all in this fight together. And, and um, I don't want to blame anybody on the drug war anymore. I just want us to fix it. Yeah. If we want to repair the Black Lives Matter situation, we have to understand and address the racial disparities that are going on within drug policy. That is just a fact. And if we can share with people that it's helping medicinally, let's stop criminalizing and stop locking human beings in cages. You're decimating minority communities by continuing this false drug war. And I feel like I have a narrative I want to share with my country about that because I think a lot of us feel the same way. Well, I feel very honored <laughs> truly <laughs> that you've shared you know the, these probably six hours or more of recorded material yeah. plus the time that we talked before then um you know that that you've been so uh, open and vulnerable in sharing your story with me and with these listeners here it, it really is an honor christine um and i i i i wish you the best i'm you know, like I'm here to help as much as I can. I def definitely would like to talk with Steve and uh, get you and Christy together. And uh, yeah, hope hope we we keep marching onward, Christian soldiers. No, onward, no. <laughs> onward something soldiers, psilocybin soldiers. I don't know what yeah. it would be, but uh, yeah, we're just all along trying to help each other. And that's I'm right. Thanks for reaching out too. I'm glad that you took a chance after seeing my, my post and, yeah. and wanted to share with your audience. I, that was my hope in sharing my post was if I could encourage one person to reconsider suicide and to reach out to a friend and yeah. to try therapies they maybe wouldn't have thought of. That's, that's the whole point in sharing all of this was to show that, you know, our, our life, I'm not trying to um, hurt any of my family by sharing my life experiences. It is just my origin story. It's, it's who we are. We're human beings and we're fallible and we all do the best we can. And these avenues of relief um, through cannabis, through psilocybin have been restorative for me and maybe it will be for others. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I got to read this little part because I sent you this message on Facebook and your response was, yeah, I'd be happy to share my experience with your audience. And then another message. Uh, however, after reviewing your podcast website, I'm a little concerned. I'm no longer a practicing member of the LDS faith. <laughs> In fact, my psychedelic experience solidified that decision and my near death encounter. And, uh, and I, I read that and I thought, well, that's funny that you looked at the website and thought that I was pro LDS church. And then second, wow, there was a near-death experience. <laughs> this is well. <laughs> wow, this is cool. It's been it's been an, an incredible journey, and I'm really, I'm really grateful I'm still alive. I really am. I'm so grateful that my first suicide attempt at 18 was failed miserably. Yeah. I'm so grateful that my my screwed up brain surgery failed miserably <laughs> and I'm still yeah. here. 
and I, I am, I'm grateful for every low moment that I've had where I crawled right back out of it and that I keep trudging along. Um, yeah. I really believe, you know, suffering is the human experience and compassion is the cure. And if we can learn to be compassionate to each other's experiences, I think we're going to be better human beings for it. Nicely said. So I think it's onward Christine soldiers <laughs> trudging on so to war or something like that. I'll figure it I'll figure it out. Yeah. I thank the boys who kicked my ass when I was 17. I thank the ones who chose to laugh and those who acted mean. In accidents and then some They shaped my life They made me like who I've become They shaped my life They made me love who I am Hi, this is Hillary Matthew Ryan Carol Dashley And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones You can comment on this episode on the website InfantsOnThrones.com And if you really like what you hear Give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you. And I'm grateful to gratitude itself. Thank you. It helps me look for the good. Thank you. Look for the good. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.